away with vainglory. Dump it all in the trash so that I can savor more of Jesus Christ. That was his attitude towards Christ. This was his dominating passion of his heart. Well, we finished the Gospel of Mark verse by verse, right? And uh, it took us a little while uh, to get this done. Um, and it's been um, really bearing heavy in my heart to, um, for a while now to study the book of Colossians. And so would you turn there? You can turn there if you like. I'm only going to focus on the first word, all right, for today, you know, because what a, what a great opportunity um, that uh, before we launch into this wonderful book and expositor that we first begin to exposit the life of the author of this book, Paul the Apostle. Um, I believe it's wise and good to keep in our mind um, the way Paul fought uh, and, and to see um, the world through his eyes so that when we go through the book of Colossians, uh, we can get a good and deeper understanding of what he meant when he wrote what he wrote. After all, his name pops up as the first word in the first verse of the first chapter of this book. Or as uh, MacArthur puts it, uh, many times, you know, when he says, you know, please open to the book of Colossians, chapter 1, and it reads, Paul, stop right there. Okay, so, but I'm not going to take that away from him. That's his copyright. But yeah, anyway, we look at the Apostle Paul. That's the whole purpose of this message today. You know, during last week in the Puritan conference, we learned um, there is much of the Puritans' tremendous devotion to Jesus Christ. Um, they had such a great passion for evangelism. The clarity of their teaching were exceptional. But even as good as they were, they were not to be compared to Paul's character, Paul's commitment and, and giftedness. For example, uh, for those of us who know John Owen, he's a, he was a great theologian. But Paul was a greater theologian. Uh, John Flavel expressed his love to the Lord immensely, but Paul expressed his love to the Lord all the more. Um, Jonathan Edwards, if we say that he was a Puritan, well, he was a, a good thinker, but Paul was even a better thinker. And it could almost be said that Paul was a Puritan long before the Puritan era has begun. In fact, we could even argue and say that Paul was a Puritan on steroid. Only second to Jesus, Paul was the most influential man in the world. And so, yes, we do well to imitate the Puritans, as Brother Jean just mentioned earlier on in the, in the morning, but I would dare say even better to imitate our Apostle Paul since the Scripture makes it clear that gives us a command to imitate him. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, Be imitators of me just as I am also of Christ. Philippians 4 verse 9, he says, 
Paul says, the things you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. So as we study the life of the Apostle Paul, we're not meant to be sitting on our chairs, clapping for him, applauding him, or even idolizing him. No. We are commanded by God's word that we would aspire to love Christ the way he loved him, to evangelize faithfully the way he did, to desire heavenly things the way Paul desired heavenly things, even if it means that we would suffer the way he suffered. So um, in that way, we, we, we can be more influential and be useful vessels in God's hand. Now, just two, dis- two things to note here. Number one, obviously, we cannot go through everything about the Apostle Paul. It would take us so long, so many sermons can be um, preached about his life. So we're only going to focus in, in just the one angle of the Apostle Paul. And number two, Uh, Given the nature of the subject, please do understand that we will be going through many passages in the scripture as we find in them a lot more about his life. Um, So keep that in mind. And what we are going to look at for today in Apostle Paul's life is number one, his conversion. Number two, his passion, his teaching. And finally, his sufferings for Christ's sake. So we start with the first one, his conversion. And we know that Paul had a a radical transformation in his life. He was heading like a train 100 kilometers per hour in one direction. But God in his mercy chose to redirect him, to change the way he's going. And 180 degrees now heading the opposite direction. So would you turn to Acts 9 as it tells us of Paul's conversion. Paul's conversion has been mentioned three times in the book of Acts, um, chapter 9, chapter 22, and chapter 26, because it was such a significant um, thing in his life. And just quickly in the background as you're flicking through the pages, Paul, whose name was Saul, was born in Tarsus. Tarsus is a wealthy Roman's providence. It's in Asia Minor, and to be more specific, it, uh, used to be in a, at a, a point in the border between Turkey and Syria. And, uh, Paul's father was a, was a rich man. He was a very, uh, wealthy, wealthy man. And, um, he would have owned the land at that time. And because he owned the land, uh, when, um, this Tarsus, this city turned into Romans providence, automatically his family would have been qualified to be Roman citizens. That was the rule at that time. What do we know about Tarsus? Um, this was a city that had a university, the best university of the ancient world. The ancient world, there were three universities. There was one in there, Tarsus. There was one in Athens and the third in Alexandria. And the one in Tarsus surpassed all the others. Now, along with being wealthy, his father was a very devout Pharisee. So by the age of around 13 or 14, um, 
Saul or Paul when he was young, he was sent to Jerusalem in order to sit under the teaching of Gamaliel, a rabbi, in order to, to study and to, mem- to memorize the Old Testament and the rabbinic traditions. Gamaliel, he was not like any other rabbi. He was the most prominent of his time. He was like uh, the John MacArthur, the Asis Prol of the Jewish world in the first century. And all this is to say that Paul, even at a young age, he had it all. He had the wealth, the wisdom, the health, and he thought that he had the world in his pocket. And he zipped his pocket. No one's going to take the world away from Paul. But the fact of the matter was that he was lost and he was heading for hell and he didn't know anything about it. He was a false convert. He was convinced that he was going the right direction. So much that he thought he had that zeal for God that as we now read in the first first verse, of chapter 9, it says, Now Saul still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So convinced in his way that he thought killing Christians was a good thing. He was going around like a maniac, winding up Christians in order to imprison them. And he wasn't just satisfied with imprisoning the Christians. No, it says they're what? Breathing. Murder. He wanted blood. Their death was the air he breathed. Breathing murder. In other words, he found rest, comfort, when he knew that one by one by one by one going to their own death. And in his own mind, it was rightly justified. He was doing God a favor. Now let's drop to verse 3. It says, as he was traveling... It happened that he was approaching Damascus. So he was on his way on the road to Damascus along with other uh, fellow companions and they're riding the horses and they're heading there. And um, Acts 26, it tells us it was midday. So around 12 p.m. And suddenly it says, a light from heaven flashed around him. A light from heaven flash around him in, in um, chapter 22 verse 6 it says very bright light but the third time Saul was giving his um, uh, testimony it was more specific and it says about this light it was brighter than the sun shining all around him and those who were journeying with him saw it So there was a blazing light glowing brighter than the light of the sun radiating all around him. And in the center of this light, this blazing light, was the person of Jesus Christ. Verse 4. What happened when he saw that light? He says, he fell to the ground. He heard a, a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Why are you persecuting me? Acts 26, it adds that Jesus said to him, it's hard for you to kick against the goats. 
What does that mean? Just a very quickly in a summary, it means basically Saul. Give up trying to fight against God. It's, it's a losing battle. Stop it while you're at it. You're heading the wrong direction. Verse 5, Saul says, who, who are you, Lord? He said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Well, many well-respected teachers at this point, they say that this was the marking point of Saul's conversion. Um, some of you may know I humbly disagree. I don't believe that Saul was converted at this point. And, um, and the reason being, I don't believe that he was converted at the point when Jesus revealed himself to him. If we just drop down to verse 8, we see that it says, Yeah, Saul got up from the ground. Though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. So it doesn't say that Jesus saved him. On the contrary, it basically says that Jesus blinded him. Saul was stone blind. At midday sun, he could see absolutely nothing. I believe that Saul, before he encountered Jesus, before this point, he was spiritually blinded, but and he didn't know about it. And the only difference is when he encountered Christ is that at that point in time, he realized he was both spiritually and physically blind. So what Jesus did to his eyesight was a reflection of his spiritual condition of his heart. And he's basically telling Saul, Saul, this is what you really like from the inside. We go on and it says here in verse 9, he was three days without sight. And look at this, neither ate nor drank. This doesn't sound like someone who just got saved. It sounds like someone who is seeking to be saved. Just like Cornelius, by the way, later on in a couple of chapters later, when he was fasting, he was praying, seeking to be saved. And he was not saved until Peter came to him. So during these three days, these dark days, Saul would have been reflecting and assessing all these riches, all his wealth of knowledge and devotion to God collapsed like a, like a, a house of cards and he would have been shattered. And he would have been devastated. I mean, imagine every thing he thought was right turned out to be wrong. And he discovered that this ladder of good works that he's been climbing all his life was leaning on the wrong wall. He was leaning on the walls of hell. All his dreams were burnt up by the appearance of Christ. I believe just like Paul in Acts 13 verse 1, how he cursed by Jesus. You know, by Jesus, he was deceived and he was a deceiver, a false teacher. And um, just like he cursed him, notice the parallel um, description of him 
um, to what happened to Saul at that point in time. Let me read it to you. Paul here is talking to Bar Jesus and he says to him, Now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you and you will be blind and not see the sun for a time. And immediately a mist and the darkness fell upon him and he went about seeking those who would lead him by the hand. How, how similar. Now, I don't believe, I, I actually believe that the same way Jesus blinded Saul. And Jesus here, um, when, when he appeared to Saul and Saul as a result, could not see anything. It wasn't that he was getting saved. It was a form of punishment, form of rebuke. So when was he saved? Well, I, I believe around a time when he saw Ananias. Again, like how Cornelius was saved around a time when he saw Peter. There's always parallelism in the book of Acts. So verse 17, drop down to verse 17. So, so Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales and he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized and he took food and was strengthened. This was such a pivotal point in Saul's life. It was a whole new creature now. It changed the entire course of his life. Everything about this man was radically transformed. His salvation redefined everything about this man. His goals, his dreams, his ambitions. Even his own name was changed from Saul to Paul. He now has new passions, new teachings, new attitudes in life. And he was willing to pay any price to pursue those passions. Let's take him one at a time. First, that we've talked about conversion. Now we look at his passions. What were Paul's strongest desires of his heart? What were his most powerful affections that dominated his life? I want to do some autopsy here and dissect the heart of this apostle. And please do remember, I want to say to you, Again, we want to imitate him as we dissect his heart and, and begin to see the passions as painted in the scripture. Pray. Pray that this would be saving grace, Bible Church. I've tried as much as I can to design this message and talk about the life of Paul in such a way that it's not just pure, mere information that would stimulate our mind. Yes, of course, there are truth from the scripture, but I tried as much as I can to show you how, what it means to imitate him. It's the whole purpose of, of studying the life of Paul. All right, well, 
two passions we'll talk about. Number one, the love for Christ. And number two, the love for the lost to be saved. And by the way, they're both intrinsically related to each other. We'll see how they're related to each other later on. But we start with his love for Christ. His love for Christ was second to none. I believe we all agree on this. Once Saul was saved, and you could have this flashback of this wonderful, glorious light of the Son of God. It never left him. This beauty, this immense glory and beauty of the Son of God defined his pursuit of life. Everything was gone now, and he's got that one single undivided passion that rules them all. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, For I determined not to know nothing, sorry, for I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Wow. I determined, I set in my heart to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ. I love the translation of the Amplified Version. Let me read it to you. It's so beautiful. For I resolved to know nothing, to be acquainted with nothing, to make a display of the knowledge of nothing, and to be conscious of nothing among you except Jesus Christ the Messiah and Him crucified let's put this in context it's not that Paul was an ignorant uneducated man he wasn't like the other of the apostles no he was remarkably intelligent very educated man and all that you need to to know to, to, to believe this is go ahead and read the book of Romans, and see how he orders his thoughts in order to prove his point. He was such a genius man. But yet, he brought everything he knew, all his intelligence, all his logical, all his skills and talents. He brought everything and he turned them into a means to know Christ more deeply, to enjoy Christ more fully. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 5, Paul says, We are taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ. There's an author of an excellent book by the name of Paul of Tarsus. That's not the name of the author, that's the name of the book. And, and he mentions, this author mentions this, and I quote, he says, Paul came as he tells us face to face with Jesus Christ. That's the conversion when he met Christ face to face and gave the rest of his life to exploring him, to enjoying the pleasure of search and the joy of discovery. He lives that he may win Christ. Uh, isn't this what Paul already told us in Philippians 3? Let me read it to you. In verse, starting from verse 7, he says, 
whatever things were gained to me, those things I have counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. In other words, Jesus Christ is the object of my worship. He's my treasure. He's the one that I worship. He's my king. He's the one that I, that I love. And he continues on and he says, For whom I have suffered, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish. Why? So that I may gain Christ. Verse 9, that I may be found in him. Verse 10, that I may know him. Paul considered giving, gaining more of Christ was worth the loss of all things. In other words, all other earthly passions and relationships that would potentially not be helpful to gain more of Christ, he considered all these things as dead weight. Unnecessary excess baggage, extra fat that chokes his delight in his Savior. Anything that doesn't advance him toward Christ, he viewed it as a hindrance. So they all must go. Dead weight must be thrown out. Extra fat must be chopped off. So he would say, in other words, away with worldly passions. Away with vainglory. Dump it all in the trash so that I can savor more of Jesus Christ. That was his attitude towards Christ. This was his dominating passion of his heart. And this passion gave birth to another passion, and that is to love the lost to be saved. He wants the lost to be saved. That's the second passion that you have. It was such a strong desire. It leaps out of the pages of the scripture. I'll show you a couple of passages. Number one, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, starting from verse 19. <laughs> Pay attention to how much he really wants the lost to be saved. Look what he says. For though I am free from all men, I have made myself a slave to all, so that I may win more. To the Jews, I became as a Jew, so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, as under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though under the law of Christ. Why? So that I may win those who are without law. To the weak, I became weak, that I may win the weak. And he gives just a quick summary. Quick summary. What he means by that, and he packs it up in that one statement. And he says, I have become all things to all men, so that I may by all means save some. He was willing to make any sacrifice, to let go of his rights in order to save anybody, 
Even to the point that he would be willing to be a slave to all men. Wow. It's kind of like he was saying. You want to think of me as a clown? Go ahead. You want to look down on me as though I'm a potato peel? <laughs> so be it. If this is what it will take to win souls for Christ. Let me be the doormat. If this is what it takes for people to walk on me in order for them to come to Christ. And if you think that this was strong language, have a look at the next passage. Romans chapter 9. This is, this, this passage here is bizarre. I don't know if I could ever reach a state where I'll be like Paul the Apostle to say what he said here. And verse 1, it says, I am telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying. Meaning what I'm about to say is true. I am not exaggerating. I'm not overstretching it. He says, my conscience testifies with me in the Holy Spirit. That sounds pretty serious. What is it that Paul wants to tell us? Verse 2. I have great sorrow. Unceasing grief in my heart. Great sorrow, meaning deep pain. Unceasing grief, non-stop anguish, continual pain. Where? In my heart. He's always carrying his deep pain within his soul that doesn't want to go away. Now here's a shocking statement. Now he's about to go all out. And it's almost like insulting our spiritual walk with God. Look what he says in verse 3. For I could wish that I myself were accursed. Accursed. What do you mean accursed, Paul? He tells you, separated from Christ. For the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. In other words, if the salvation of unbelievers around me would cause me to be banished, cut off from Christ, I would wish to hand over even my own eternal life for the sake of my family members, for my kinsmen, for my friends to have their sins forgiven. Or did he have passion for the lost to be saved? Now, why is that? Well, why is it the love and passion for Christ goes hand in hand with love and passion for the lost to be saved? Why? I want to say something. When you read this passage, lest you misunderstand, it's not like Paul had so much anguish that it took away the joy of the Lord from him. 
And he's becoming kind of like depressed man. No, 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 no. It's the exact opposite. The more Paul was basking in the joy of Christ, the more he loved and cherished Christ. And the more his heart swelled up and he had so much joy in Christ and delighted in all of God's promises, then he would look around and he would see lost men and women who are not experiencing such fulfillment. What happens? His heart aches for them. It's kind of like saying, oh man, they're missing out. How can my kinsman be an arm's length away from me, yet eternity away from enjoying Jesus? And so as the higher his joy in the Lord grows and the deeper he recognizes the wretchedness of man, the greater the gap between his love for the Savior. And then he looks on the other side and he sees the deadness of men around him. It leads him to be grieved. And what a gap it was. And he's kind of like saying, how can I continue experiencing the sweetness of my Savior, the deliciousness of knowing Christ my Lord? And yet at the same time, my people, I still remain to be the object of the wrath of the Lamb. Passion for Christ and passion for the lost to be saved. And what did his passion for Christ and for the lost to be saved lead him to do? What, what was in Paul's heart that came through and out of his mouth? Or in other words, what was the main subject of his teaching? We come to the third point teaching looked at his conversion his passion and now his teaching and nothing more did paul love to teach about than what was already dominating his heart as soon as he was saved remember in acts 9 as soon as he was saved it says here in verse 20 immediately he began to proclaim who christ jesus he flat out tells us in Colossians 1 verse 28, we proclaim Him. We proclaim Him. It's not what was dominating His teaching, it was who was dominating His teaching. All His great theologies and doctrines, all that He taught in all of His epistles funneled into one thing. And that is the personhood of Christ Jesus. For example, when he spoke about the doctrine, the mystery of the rapture, where he said when, when Jesus himself will descend from heaven with, with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, that we will be raptured, we'll be caught up in the cloud. It is so that we would find comfort in the fact that we will always be with Jesus. When he spoke of the doctrine of the indwelling of the Spirit and the strengthening of the inner man, it is only to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge. 
But he taught that Jesus was the ultimate solution to every heart-pressing problem. Do you doubt God's love for you? Paul tells us to look at the cross. The death of Christ for sinners shows the solidarity of God's love for his people. Romans 5.8 Do you sense that there is a division within the body of Christ? Age barrier, status barrier, ethnicity barrier. Paul teaches that the blood of Christ crushes all barriers. And it's only through him we can enjoy the unity of the brethren. Do you find that you're ungrateful and you want to learn contentment so that you would be thankful in everything? Paul tells us in, in, four, in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And if you feel weak, your heart is broken because you're betrayed or backstabbed somehow, Paul teaches that Jesus' grace is sufficient for you. 2 Corinthians 12, 9. And there is not a problem that Jesus is not an answer for. And Paul found it such a privilege, such an honor to preach Christ. And he says in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints. This grace was given. What grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ. Wow. Well, as we come to the end of this point, there's another one more point to come. As we come to the end of this point, I want to read to you Philippians chapter 1, and please notice the progression. The progression. As, as Paul shows us how he expresses his love for the Savior through proclaiming his name. So verse 18 says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed and in this I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. In other words, I don't care what people's motives are. I don't care what they want. So long as Christ is proclaimed, I'm so glad. That was just only the beginning. And then he moves that vehicle of passion further and he presses the, a little bit of pressure and he puts pressure on that pedal and moves it forward in, in verse 20 and he says, but that with all boldness, Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body, whether by life or by death, exalted, meaning magnified, enlarged. It means it's almost like saying getting a magnifying um, lens and you hover over the bit where Christ is in Paul and he says, I want this to be so magnified. And he hits the full throttle by saying in verse 21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, his love for Jesus captured his heart, 
captivated him to the point that Paul now is so eager for Jesus' name to be known. You hear Paul unleashing this expression of his love for Jesus by saying, I want Christ to be so visible, so magnified, so proclaimed in my life. Whether by life or death. And he meant what he said, and he said what he meant, right? What he said with his mouth, he lived it out. His passion, the dominating desire of his heart was the dominating subject of his teaching. And we know that this is true. He wasn't bluffing. How do we know that? Because of the extent of the suffering. He had to undergo in order for Christ to be proclaimed. So we come to the third point. He's suffering for Christ. He was passionate about Christ. He taught Christ and he suffered for Christ. So 2 Corinthians chapter 11. I'm just going to read to you that big. Passage there from verse 24 to 26. Pay attention to the kind of sufferings he he had to go through for Jesus' sake. He says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. That is suffering in the hands of the Jews. Then in verse, verse 25, it says, three times I was beaten with a rod, with rods. That's a suffering, by the way, of the Romans. Once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys, in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, Dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in, on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Where did he suffer danger? Everywhere. From whom did he suffer danger? Everyone. People just kicked him around. They slammed shut their doors on his face. He wasn't welcome anywhere. In other passages, he tells us that he was homeless, that he was the scum of the world, that he was the dregs of all things. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, he said of himself that he was a nobody. And if you would look at the Greek translation, it actually pops up and says he was worthless. Homeless, it means he would sleep at a street corner somewhere, unwanted, rejected as a cast down. He was a rich man, an intelligent man. Left it all for Christ. He tells us in 2 Corinthians 4 how he was afflicted, confused, persecuted, struck down, always being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Why? So that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in his flesh. 
suffering. Real suffering. Right? Real suffering. And we know how he ended his life. Tradition tells us that he was beheaded. You know, I was reading in the book of Acts with my daughter the other day and just reflecting on his life and how he was headed to Jerusalem. And what a marvelous piece of text in the scripture where it says, you know, the, you know, they prophesied that he was going to Jerusalem, that he will be bound hands and feet and he will die basically. And they knew that they will not see his face ever again. And they started weeping and begging him. Begging him not to go to Jerusalem. And do you remember what he said to them? Remember? He said, what are you doing weeping and breaking my heart? I'm not only willing to go to Jerusalem, Jerusalem, but I'm willing to die for Jesus' sake. That's exactly what happened to him. Right? But hey, 2,000 years later, imagine this. Imagine we interviewed Paul. And suppose, it won't happen, but suppose that the Lord in, in his sovereignty allows Paul to come down. And then you ask Paul, Paul, was it worth it? All his sufferings. I know you're passionate about Christ. You taught Christ, makes sense. But to go as far as to have this painful experience, this kind of suffering, rejection, loss of finance, loss of relationships, people look down on you, stoned almost to death, and then get beheaded at the end. Nobody was with you but Luke. You're a loner all your life, Paul. Was it worth it? What would he say to us? He would look down from the sky with a smile on his face and he would say, as he said in Romans 8 verse 18, and he said in many different places, I consider the sufferings of this present time are not what? Are not worthy to be compared. You, you, they're not even on the scale with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I'm with Christ now. And it was through this suffering. It enlarged my heart. That for eternity to come. I can enjoy Christ more deeper. And the suffering he went through, proportional to that suffering, so was the weight of glory that he now is enjoying in heaven. I'm not going to give any application because I believe from beginning to the end as we just reflect on the life of Paul, that is just enough application for us. Oh, would to God that we would have the heart of Paul. That we would see Christ the way he saw him. In such a way that, that Christ will be the dominant 
desire of our hearts and, and the very, very subject that is in our mouth. So even as we discuss theology, that they all funnel and find their way in the person of Christ and that we would be willing to suffer, to willing to, to, to even die for Jesus' sake and to live for, for Christ the way Paul wanted to live for Christ. I, 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 this is my heart prayer for Saving Grace Bible Church, including myself, of course, as part of it, that this, this life of Paul will be our life, that this would be the legacy we leave behind, that we are a nobody, that even if it means that we are the scum of the earth, the earth, but we would live for Christ. And that later on, later on, we say to those people who would hear of us, it was worth it. It was worth it. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, we are so thankful. We are so thankful for Christ. There is nothing that Paul had of Jesus that is not available for us today. Because as much as he had all of Jesus, so also we have all of Jesus in our lives if we belong to him. And the love that you have for Paul is the same love you have for us. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead all the way and seated him at the right hand of you, Father, is the same power that is available for all of us to transform our lives and to enjoy Christ the way, the way Paul enjoyed your son, Jesus. Would you put in our hearts such commitment, such devotion that we would enjoy your son the way Paul enjoyed him? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.